Well, turn with me, please, to Isaiah chapter 11 this morning. Isaiah chapter 11, and we'll read today verses 1 through 9. I have enjoyed studying these passages in Isaiah, a unique look for me on the Advent season. You have the gospel accounts, the birth of Christ there in Matthew uh, and Luke, but I'm enjoying very much this Old Testament perspective as well. The, the coming of the promised child of God's promised salvation. So let's continue with Isaiah 11 this morning, beginning at verse 1. Hear now God's word. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do give you our thanks for your holy word. It is precious to us, and the promises of God are our portion. And you are the God of peace. You've taught us that in returning to you, by resting in you, we will be saved. That in quietness and in confidence shall be our strength. So by the might of your spirit, lift us, we pray, up to your presence. As the word has been read, as now it is proclaimed, as we continue in this time of worship in your presence. May we know that presence, and may we be still and know that you are God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, things were not working well in Israel. The king, that's the representative of God's reign over his people, he was faithless towards God. We've seen that when Ahaz is confronted by Isaiah. The priests, they were performing worship, they were doing their duties, they were going through the formal activities, but according to the first chapter of Isaiah, God was not accepting it. It wasn't mixed with true piety, obedience, and faith. And other prophet-like figures in the land, those who might speak on God's behalf, they were not directing the people towards God's truth. And as a result, the land was filled with oppression and injustice. And if that wasn't enough, foreign invaders were at the gates ready to sweep into the land. And friends, this is the promised land. This is supposed to be a foretaste of the new creation, 
A place where God's people enjoy his presence, the quietness and rest that he promises. But it was in dysfunction and disarray. And we may not be living in ancient Israel, but perhaps there are times when your life and your soul seem like they are in dysfunction and disarray. God's presence seems far away. Maybe your home is chaotic or work is stressful. Maybe family dynamics are are pushing your stress levels to a critical mass and you know it's going to go on for a few more weeks. Maybe there are bad habits, sins perhaps, that are destroying you. And nobody knows about it but you. If anyone in this room truly knew you, you would believe it would be a disaster. Well, all those factors can make you feel like your world is falling apart. And when your world is chaotic, whether that's the literal world in which we live or your world, so to speak, where do you turn for hope? Well, today's passage answers that question. You see, here in Isaiah 11, we encounter another description of the ideal ruler. Judah needed a better king and a better government, and God keeps offering one to them with with near-term encouragements and long-term ideal fulfillments. We get another one of those today. And one of the unique angles about today's passage is it describes the results of the king's reign in terms of a harmonious creation. A world put to rights, a world running the way it's supposed to. And so we can listen to this passage today and it will assure us that if you want your life to work well, you need the reign of Jesus the king. And this passage shows us three ways that rain will affect your life. Here's the first. He rules over you through his spirit. One commentator calls this section, Hope Despite Destruction. In light of all the judgments God has threatened, with rather strong language, beginning even with chapter 1, he still offers hope to his people. And we first saw that hope this season in chapter 7, 14, uh, verse 14, the promise of the virgin birth. It was amplified in last week's passage, chapter 9, with the promise of the child on whose shoulders the government will rest. And now in chapter 11, the promise comes to full expression. Yes, judgment will come, but so will restoration. And how will it come? By means of this king. So how does the passage describe him? How can we spot him and be on the lookout for this king? Well, first, it focuses on his humble origins. Verse 1 reads, a shoot will come up. From the stump of Jesse, from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And notice that phrase, stump of Jesse. Now, who's Jesse? That's the father of King David. So you have an allusion to the royal household. But instead of describing it in terms of David's great house or a magnificent tree, Isaiah calls it a stump of Jesse. And I think two things inspire that comparison. In the previous verse, the last verse of chapter 10, 
God describes judgment on Assyria as follows. He will cut down the forest thickets with an axe. Lebanon will fall before the mighty one. God describes himself as a woodcutter taking the axe to a thick forest and leveling it. Maybe it brings to mind for some of you that old Paul Bunyan cartoon where he's just going through the forest, swinging the axe, and everything is falling down. That is the judgment that God warns is coming. Now, that's a warning for Assyria in that verse. But back in chapter 6, God warned Judah that judgment would also come upon them and leave only a stump behind. But you know what's interesting about God's use of the stump imagery back there in chapter 6? Is that while the falling of the tree signals judgment, the preservation of the stump signals the hope of restoration. Just as trees leave stumps when they fall and they're hard to get rid of, so the holy seed, the remnant, will be the stump in the land. And so when we come here to chapter 11, no surprise that we find God returning to stump imagery and promising that a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Now, why does God refer to Jesse and not David? Well, as I've already hinted, I think he refers to Jesse to remind us of David's humble origins and the humble state into which the monarchy has fallen. And God is just trying to say, no matter how far Israel has fallen, no matter how far you might fall or wonder, God will restore them. And maybe he's referring to Jesse to say, you know what, you're just, you're not going to get another Davidic king. You're just going to get a brand new David. So no matter how bad things get, I will provide this ideal David figure. And it signals hope for the future. A hope that will come through this descendant of Jesse. Now the passage goes on to tell us now the secret of this king's success. Verses 2 through 3 read, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The Spirit of counsel and of might. The Spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Where do we first meet David in the Bible? In 1 Samuel 16, where Samuel anoints him the next king of Israel. Well, this future king, this son of Jesse, he will be anointed with God's spirit. And that's a common image in the Bible, anointing, whether with oil or by the spirit, to show God enabling you to do what God has called you to do. So what will God enable this king to do? Well, first he will have wisdom and understanding. And the two words, they go together to say this king will have a high degree of wisdom. He will be able to make wise legal decisions. And that solves one of Israel's current problems, the presence of injustice and oppression. This king will make the world a better place. Second, he will have counsel and might. Again, they're going to go together. All these pairs will go together to say he'll have strength. To execute his counselors. 
He will be a, or excuse me, to execute his counsels. Executing your counselors is a very different image, isn't it? He will execute his counsels. He'll be a mighty counselor. Does that remind you of a previous verse? Isaiah 9, 6. Well, that's intentional. It's the same words used there. When we read wonderful counselor, mighty God. Here they've rearranged him a bit, but the picture is very much the same. And lastly, he'll have the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. With the result that he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Again, knowledge, that that covenantal idea there of recognizing God's authority, knowing God, submitting to him. Fear is very similar. That's this healthy respect for God's authority, which leads to obedience. And so again, together, this idea of loyalty to the Lord. The Net Bible renders it a spirit that produces absolute loyalty to the Lord. And as we said last week, the next king that Judah got was Hezekiah. And he was a marked improvement over Ahaz. He moved towards the ideal that we read in this passage. But no earthly king can fully satisfy these criteria. We need a king who descends from Jesse, but we need more than that. So here's what we get. In Matthew's gospel, at Jesus' baptism, we read, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Jesus goes there to John and he takes his position with sinners. He identifies with sinners. He says, These are my people. This is my place. I stand with them in order to save them. And that is when God gives him the spirit. Go do that job and says, I am well pleased with him. You see, when we finally get a king like what Isaiah describes here, that's a king you can trust. He'll rule over you and he will care for you. And God himself spoke from heaven to say, Jesus is the ideal king. You can trust him. I am giving my spirit to him to accomplish the salvation. He will do good to others. And now here's the connection to us. Having accomplished our salvation by the spirit, he rules over us by the spirit. He was anointed by the spirit and now he's poured out his spirit on his church. And so we read in Galatians 5.16, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And verse 18, If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The Spirit produces in us the character, the virtues that the law cannot. He gives you power to overcome sin. He gives you internal peace. He puts your life back together. It's the virtue of being God's people, spirit people, so to speak. And I'll say this, he won't do that if you're resisting and fighting him. But if you want your life to work well, then you need the reign of Jesus through the spirit. 
And maybe he'll even disrupt your life, but it will be for your good to know him and to be brought to this place of peace. So let's look at another way that this king blesses us. He judges you in righteousness. Judgment is something we fear, but the judgment of this king is righteous. Beginning with the end of verse 3, we read, He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Right? We know how Jesus reigns over us through the Spirit. Now we have a description of what that reign looks like. So let's start with the end of the description. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. I'm beginning with the end because these are the foundational characteristics. This produces the Messiah's good reign. He is righteous. So that means he has the ability to do the right thing. And while righteousness in the Bible doesn't equal faithfulness, Often, righteousness, when God does the right thing, it's because he's being faithful to his people. That's the right thing he's doing, keeping his promises. And so faithfulness just backs that up. He's dependable and true. So they go together. This king has integrity. And that results in complete dependability. Friends, this is the kind of God, the kind of king God has given you, one you can depend on with your life and with your soul. And so when you have a king like that, how does he govern you? First, with integrity. Back to the end of verse 3. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. In other words, he's not swayed by what he sees or hears. He can't be bought. He's not prejudiced. He has access to insight that nobody else does. And so he has the wisdom that can see to the heart of a matter, better than Solomon, infinitely so. He can understand these complex situations, and he can make the right decision. And so when your world's falling apart and it feels that way, it's not rattling him. He knows how to govern. He knows how to steer the ship. Second, he judges you sacrificially. I'll explain what I mean by that. Look at verse 4. With righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. So this king looks out for the poor and needy. And you see a corrupt king would be tempted to curry the favor and goodwill of the rich and powerful. Why? Because then he can keep his position. He doesn't have to worry about threats. But not this king. He fulfills his royal duty to care for the poor, the helpless, and the outcasts. We saw that in our opening reading today, Psalm 146. Well, this is the kind of king we get. He takes those kinds of risks. And we see Jesus modeling this. And what happened to him? He was killed for it. And so that's why I say your king judges you sacrificially. He gives you what you need, what others won't give you, even at cost to himself. And lastly, he judges you with 
mercy. The end of verse 4 reads, He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. You say, that doesn't really sound like mercy. Well, consider, all of us could end up in that position, but we find ourselves recipients of mercy. Saul was persecuting Christians. God could have justly slayed him in in accordance with this verse. But what did God do? He knocked him off his donkey, opened his spiritual eyes, and rescued him from the path, leading to destruction. That is the mercy God shows his enemies, and he offers us salvation instead of judgment. And that way of reigning over us is righteous. So have you acknowledged This Jesus as king, are you submitting to his reign? Is the the movement of your life just more and more allegiance to Jesus the king? I, I promise life is better that way. Again, does God bring disruption into our lives sometimes? Sure he does. But there's also disruption that we can bring into our lives by running from God. By not being at peace with him. I'm not saying all your problems are your own making. I'm just saying living under his reign is better than fighting it. So lastly then, let's consider he brings harmony to your world. Verses 6 through 9 contain beautiful language. Probably a well-known passage to many of you. And it describes this harmonious creation. Verse 6 is a good representative verse the wolf will live with the lamb the leopard will lie down with the goat the calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them this is the result of the messiah's righteous reign animals that typically destroy one another are living in harmony And in the midst of these powerful creatures, children are playing and taking charge. What do we make of this imagery? On one level, I think we should take it somewhat symbolically. Now hear me out. I'm not taking away this beautiful promise. But animals are frequently used in the Bible to symbolize powerful forces, especially kingdoms and nations. So think of Joseph's dream with the cows or Daniel's vision of those grotesque mixed creatures. Well, here we have Isaiah promising that when my Messiah comes, he will bring more harmony to his creation, more harmony to those who are typically estranged from one another. The predatory and the prey animals represent oppressors and the oppressed. And under the Messiah's reign, those who submit to his reign, those oppositions cease. So it's an extended figure of speech to say, look, there will be benefits now when Messiah shows up. He will remove the fears associated with insecurity, danger, and evil. Now, at the same time, I am more than happy to read these words as concrete descriptions of a coming new creation. So what we keep seeing in Isaiah, the immediate and the long term. Jesus spoke of a renewal of all things. Other passages in the New Testament and Old speak of a new heaven and a new earth, free from the curse of sin and death. 
So what Jesus does now through his spirit changes people's hearts and actions. They live in harmony with others. And one day, his reign will transform creation itself. And what do we find once again at the center of God's transforming, saving activities? Children. Verse 6 tells us, a little child will lead them. The them being the wolves, the leopards, the lions. A child will be in charge of them. They'll submit to a child. One commentator writes, a child, not a strutting monarch, is the one whom God chooses to rule this world's great. And the celebration of Christmas, it reminds us of that. God's humble ways of fixing his creation. That's what we focus on this time of year. But it also builds anticipation. Because what God begins with such small means, children, transforms into glorious worldwide realities. Verse 8 reads, The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. Now, if any of you saw your infants playing at a cobra's den, you would move at light speed to pick them up, wouldn't you? Well, not in God's new creation. Why? Because there's harmony. There's no fear. There's no fear of death from a child doing this kind of activity. Why? Why does creation work together so well? Because as the end of verse 9 tells us, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth recognizes the Lord's sovereignty and submits to his authority. People know God and they live in harmony with one another. And so I would encourage you in in two areas. One, be hopeful as you persevere to the new creation. Romans 8, that we saw some months ago, it tells us the creation was subjected to frustration in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Right now, we're journeying through the wilderness. And God gives rest and refreshment, manna and water along the way. But there's a promised reward. And that makes persevering worth it. And second then, I would encourage you, be an agent of God's harmony, of God's justice, and of God's mercy even now. Again, there are realities in this passage that will not be, that cannot be realized before the Lord comes. But they have already invaded. They've broken into our present world through the work of God among his people. They're the qualities God is forming in you, in your heart. And we can be agents of this kind of rule, this kind of people, this kind of savior in our communities, wherever God puts you. You can know this rule in your own heart now as you follow Jesus. And so if you want your life to work well, then you need the reign of this Jesus, the King. So let's pray. Let's give thanks to God. Let's pray to this end.